Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Brian Epstein first proposed being the Beatles manager on December the 3rd, 1961. Less than five years later, on August the 29th, 1966, the Beatles strode off stage of their last gig at San Francisco's Candlestick Park. At that point in time, all that Brian Epstein had achieved would have been unfathomable at the start of the decade. What was his business model supposed to be next, now that his main charges, the Beatles, had decided to cease playing by the standard show business rules? What was possible was unknown at that point in 1966, as was the fact that Brian would die one year later. Um, he, like many things in the Beatle universe, crammed a lot into a short period of time, didn't he, Stephen? Yes, I think, uh, as you say, in all the aspects of their career, you're looking at people that really were forging a new path. They were sort of uh, doing things that had never been done before. They were doing things that were outside their experience. And Brian, uh, perhaps as much as, you know, Paul and John's songwriting or George Martin's production, it, it, this, this was uncharted territory. Mm. And I, I think, you know, to let a little light in on magic, one of the biggest things we've been asked for over the years of doing this podcast is a Brian episode. And we touched upon him in our fifth Beatles episode a little bit because he does warrant this fifth Beatle name. He's He's been credited by the Beatles themselves as being a fifth Beatle from time to time, him and, and George Martin. Um, and I think the more we looked at it, the more we realised it's a it's a huge topic. It's, it's absolutely vast. Um, he's a very complicated character and it's a very complicated story and it's got lots of little sort of uh, side diversions. And uh, so what we decided to do was just look at the last 12 months of his life. Mm. Start at the end. Exactly. And, uh, well, it's, it's, it, 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 what I was very surprised about, one of the many surprises about the Get Back Peter Jackson movie was the, the shadow of Brian and how that is played mm. throughout Get Back. And, you know, there's definitely a, a pre, um, you know, Brian Beatles and then a, you know, post Brian Beatles, you know, when, once he dies, that things, do change the dynamic does change and we'll, we'll talk about that across these episodes but he's um you know they're, they're very definite about it. the many kind of things that are shifted in, in peter jackson's get back it's that saying that you know when brian dies something very important changes and i think looking at that last year you know you, you kind of tease out the you know the, the things that could have happened or you know you can start to look at well could there have been a, you know, what would his role have been if if he was still around in 69? 
I think I think that's right. Get back in particular, I was not expecting Brian to loom quite as largely as he does. Um, and it, the, the fact that they, you know, they don't call him Brian. They mm. call him Mr. Epstein. Mm. You, you know, they, they're still, you, we, you know, we know John famously sort of said he realized that when Brian died, that was it. You, you know, they'd had it. Um, but uh, to, to see that, two years after he died or 18 months after he died, they were still referring back. And, you know, when, when Mr. Epstein went away mm-hmm. or they talked to, you know, we're, we're, we're still looking for daddy. And the, the, the terms and the, the, the language that they use in referring to him, I think is very telling. Um, you know, he, he supervised their career. He, even if he wasn't responsible in their minds, you know, it was all happening at the same time. It was all happening under his supervision. So he becomes responsible that he uh, facilitates yeah. their their rise to, you know, being the biggest thing in the world. Well, he was, he was a great gatekeeper for many things and a great filter. And I think overall, he deserves credit. And was he a good manager? Is that a fair question? Or he was the best manager for the Beatles, I think, is the statement. I, I I think that that's something that you you phrase you used uh, whenever we had Mark Lewis and all, and you said you know they got that they got the manager that they they needed the manager they deserved, and I think that's as much as you can say. You can't objectively really assess his skills as a manager. You can say you know he was deficient here, or he was very good there, or he you know his business acumen left something to be desired, but he was the perfect manager for them at the time. It's an interesting thing because what you kind of get with the start of rock and roll is the managers start to become a little bit famous. You know, Larry Parnes becomes yes. famous. You know, there's documentaries about Larry Parnes and the the, the pre-Beatle British rock and roll world and how, you know, he's, he's co- you know, getting people ready for success. And in the 60s, you meet all these management types. So Andrew Lou Goldham and the, the Rolling Stones, Stamp and Lambert and The Who, these people become famous themselves. Even the Kinks had a very specific type of management group, uh, Collins and Weiss were their names. And each of those is a different style. Like Oldham for the Stones was very much um, trying to manipulate the media. Um, Stamp and Lambert were also kind of media manipulators, but they were also arch, uh, you know, uh, Lambert was very much in tune with uh, Pete Townsend's kind of artistic sensibilities. Um, whereas, you know, the Kinks managers are total novices, didn't know what they were doing, signing bad contracts. So you kind of see this panoply. And Brian, not every decision he made was great, but he very much plugged into the art side of the Beatles. I, I think that's right. And one of the things you can say is that he clearly modelled himself on the, the type of manager from the generation before mm. or a few generations back. He was an impresario. Yes. He, you know, he, he the, uh, and this, I think becomes even more pronounced um, in, in the last 12 months of his life. You know, he, he, he was hanging out with uh, uh, Lionel Bart. Um, he, he, one of his very closest friends was Al McCogan, who was a singer from the 50s and was regarded as deeply on hip mm-hmm. uh, by the time 1963 arrived. But he was moving in those sort of traditional, slightly effete English London theatre circles. It was showbiz in, in, in a kind of classic definition, as opposed to, you know, by the time we get into the 70s, you've got people like Peter Grant, who are, uh, you know, 
punching bootleggers and uh, smashing <laughs> yes. up um, uh, unofficial T-shirt concessions. So it, it's he, he's very much in an old style. He he comes out of the fifties yeah. in a way that the, the Beatles don't. You know, he the Beatles are tapping in in the in the fifties to the the sort of the changes that are happening, and he's Brian is is not of their world. But uh, he, what, what he did bring to the Beatles was he did absolutely love them. And we'll talk about this in a bit. He did manage many other people as well. But the Beatles were, you know, that the Beatles didn't realise that they needed somebody who would kind of love them and go to bat for them and be their sort of showbiz parent, which is exactly what he was. You know, the you know the, the, the Stones didn't need that type of management, but the Beatles did. And Brian's kind of MO was to try and, you know, he felt he loved them, so everyone else should love them as well. That would seem to be his main aim for the for, for the for the band. Yes, I think so. Um you know, he was almost a father figure. And, you know, we this taps into all sorts of things, particularly with Lennon and uh you know that that need in his life for someone to kind of take control, but then also that that you're constantly let down by that person. So whether it's your father or it's your manager or it's your spiritual advisor or your psychiatrist or psychologist, or Lennon is constantly sort of seeking that figure in his life, and um, uh, that's Brian filled that role. And it's interesting to to and we maybe come on to it in if not in this episode, but in other episodes about, you know, Brian had a very different relationship with each of mm. the four members of the band as well as the band collectively. But you're right. I think he the, the the overriding thing is from the moment he saw them, he was telling people, I love these people. I adore these people. They're going to be the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. And uh, that, that's an easy thing for anybody to say, you, you know, um, if I first meet you and I think, Jason, you're going to be the <laughs> biggest podcaster in the world. But yeah. it's still then it ha- then it happens. Um, we're still waiting for that to happen, obviously. But um, uh, but you know what I mean. He he. It, th- there is a sense of his enthusiasm and his love for the band that he communicates to everybody that he deals with. Well, it's easy in retrospect, you know, because the world loves the Beatles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But for him to actually, you know, walk into a room, and obviously there were fans at that time in Liverpool. But for him to say, "Yep, this is it," you know, he he'd never. It wasn't like he was auditioning any other bands or he had made this his life's work but for him to have that massive penny drop and to actually follow through on it for somebody who could be somewhat um, unreliable in certain matters in his life it was very uh, impressive that yes. he managed to be true and to deliver on that one yes there was a lot for Brian to kind of hold together yeah um, uh, uh, and the whole point about the the, the first sort of three years, I suppose, post Love Me Do of the Beatles career, there is this phenomenal forward momentum. And uh, so you don't have time to stop and think. Mm. Um, None of them do. Uh, Brian, least of all, you're constantly reacting to what's happening, uh, to something that is spiraling out of control. And eventually um, it, it, it starts to get beyond all of them. It uh, gets bigger than all of them, and it's something that cannot be controlled. And that's particularly exacerbated, I think, once they stop touring. Yes. Because that's, that, that is a huge driver for that forward momentum. So um, we want to focus on the last year of Brian's life, but I, I guess we need to do, a la Peter Jackson's Get Back, a little quick summary of Brian's um, 
life up until 1966. Yes, so in the beginning, the <laughs> earth cooled and dinosaurs roamed the land. And skip forward a bit, skip forward a bit. <laughs> uh, he was, Brian Epstein was born in 1934. Yes, so he was 31 at the time of Candlestick Park. Um, and he's, he's born into a very comfortable, affluent um, Liverpool uh, Jewish family who've based themselves famously um, in, in town by having North End music stores and Epstein and Stone stores uh, across the city. So they are well known. They're well known. They're established. Uh, I think Paul's father bought the piano there at, at, at the music store so that they are they are very respectable uh, in that sense. The other thing is they are Jewish. So to that extent, they're kind of slightly apart as well. Yeah. So um, and it's that sort of slight outsider status. Uh, I think that Brian wears not particularly lightly sometimes. Um, but yeah, they're very respectable and uh, they're probably as far away as you can get within Liverpool from, uh, you know, uh, Ringo and George and living in their upbringing. Yeah. And, and, and from also the Beatles' original manager, Alan Williams, you know, he's a different type of uh, businessman. Yes. Yes. And he has no background. Brian has no background in management. His background is in retail. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's been to RADA. He wanted to be an actor. He wanted to be a dress designer. He has no aspirations to be managing a, a, a rock band. Yes. Um, so, uh, and it, it's that intersection of working in the retail trade, selling a record that brings him into their their orbit and uh as i say that there's there's some kind of instantaneous love at first sight thing that's going on there uh with him against it's confining his family's expectations it's confined confining the social expectations of the of the time and even i suppose it's completely the antithesis of what Brian has seen for her as his own career path but but yes and no i mean you can kind of see I guess there wasn't uh, so many paths for people to take perhaps back in that day. But he certainly, you could argue, or an argument could be made to say, well, look, he grew up in a, a household that dealt in, you know, business and accounts. But he was obviously somebody who, you know, he was homosexual. So he had uh, an affinity towards creative arts and he had an affinity towards acting. But from what we know, he had no particular skill at acting. But it does yeah. make sense to think that, well, he came from a business family. He was interested in showbiz. So he went into the business side of showbiz. It's not the, the greatest leap of all time. It just mightn't have been obvious to anyone at that point in time. No, I mean, I think I think if you'd probably if you'd asked him, he would have seen himself as a theatre empresario yeah. or something and legitimate, legitimate theatre. And uh, his, his interests sort of lie in that direction, I think. And as we will see in the last year of his life, those sort of threads come back to the surface. If that's not too much of a mixed metaphor, do threads come yeah. to a surface? Yeah. Who knows? Um, so the, the origin story of Brian as manager is that um, uh, uh, Raymond Jones walks into the NEMS shop, asks for a copy of My Bonnie, uh, a single which he had heard, and uh, Brian goes off and sees the group and falls in love. However, Paul would sometimes say, you know, Brian must have known perfectly well who the Beatles were because we were on the front cover of Mersey Beat and he was selling Mersey Beat in his shop. And, you know, how, how would you not notice yeah. that? Yes. And I mean, at one point, he's, you know, he's writing a column, Stop the World, in, in, in Mersey Beat. So there's a, there's a slow drift um, because of the, you know, the record shop um, it, into that 
into that world. Um, and then, as you say, in December 61, he, he suddenly proposes this idea of managing them. Yeah. And, and there is an incredible forward momentum. So if you think, you know, December 61, he proposes managing them. By December 62, you know, they've had a first single out and in the charts by December 63, you know, they're onto their second album. They're just about to crack America. By December 64, they're the biggest group in the world. By December yeah. 65, they are still the biggest group in the world, if not even bigger. And we're into the realm of, um, you know, Rubber Soul and, and them starting to, to get into the, the world of, of reinvention. Um, so 1966 is where we're going to start our, our Brian story. And famously, the Beatles played their last gig on Candlestick Park on the 29th of August, 1966. Do you know what day of the week that was, Stephen? I do not, Jess. It was a Monday. Who goes to a gig on a Monday? Who goes to a gig on a Monday? And the Beatles had had a very odd touring schedule in 1966, which would obviously be enough for a standalone episode itself. Um, they did a two-part world tour, which had 20 dates in total, with uh, some of those were double shows, um, where they go to Germany, Japan and Philippines in the end of June, start of July, which provokes the excellent mm-hmm. trivia question. When did the Beatles play their last gig in Hamburg? And everyone says 1962. Yeah, but no, they played... Uh, no, yeah, 26th of June, 1966 in Hamburg, West Germany, um, but in the much larger Ernst Merkhalle. Um, they have their catastrophic shows in the Philippines um, on the 4th of July, and then they've got another few weeks off. Um, the album Revolver comes out on August the 5th. So that's their you know, only album release of 1966. So the pace of Beatles releases is changing. And then essentially they go off on yep. what you could call the North American Revolver Tour, um, which runs from the 12th of August to the 29th of August. It's um, 14 dates in total. 13 of those dates are in the US where they play 16 shows. One of those dates is in Canada where they do uh, two shows uh, in Toronto. Um, and it's it's the tour where... As I said, it's an episode in itself. John has said they're bigger than Jesus, and that's overshadowing the tour. The experience in Manila a month earlier is overshadowing the tour. Uh, Anybody who's looked at any of the press conferences from that time, you're dealing with a very surly, world-weary band. Yes, and I mean, particularly, there's very good colour footage of the shows in Japan uh, at the Budokan, and they just look exhausted. And uh, the, the, the point is made that um, well, two points, I suppose. One, it's the Revolver tour. Uh, they're promoting Revolver and they're not playing a single song uh, from the album. Um, and uh, in Japan, they can hear themselves play for the first time yes. in, in three years because the, 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 they're quite polite. The audiences, they're quite reserved. They scream between the songs, but they don't scream during the songs. And the Beatles, I think, become increasingly conscious of the fact that they're just... Their, their stagecraft is slipping away and they don't sound great and they just sound tired. And, you, you know, if if we'd been in the audience in 1966 and you could hear them play, objectively, you'd be thinking, this isn't very good. Well, they talk about it in anthology. There's that great footage where they're singing Paperback Writer in Budokan and they're waving to the crowd to get them to scream to cover all the mistakes they made. And it's it's, yeah. a, it's another example of one of these kind of beetle flash in the pan moments that looms large in, in, in their lunchtime because it's only three dates that they spend in, in three days that they spend in Tokyo. But it's uh, mm. something that 
you know, seems to have really resonated with them. And then they, they hit Manila on the way back. And that's a whole other uh, world of, of, of pain. So when they get to um, the, the, the North American part of the tour, they, they, they kind of, you know, in 1965, they, they'd kind of broken the mould in terms of playing, you know, Shea Stadium and playing stadiums for the first time. This tour another anthology moment, you know, they, Shea Stadium is on the, the bill a second time and they don't even remember playing it. And you could argue that, you know, their star is on the, the wane. It's not the big sellout shows that they're used to. No, I mean, by this stage, uh, the, the big band, uh, the big band in America was uh, Herman's Hermits. Uh, they, they'd taken over as um, a fan favourite. I mean, there's, there's that little clip of a girl being interviewed outside the one of the shows and said, you know, yeah, they're good, but, you know, they're not as good as Herman's Hermits. And I, I think there is this sense that they're they're sort of outgrowing their audience in, 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 to a degree mm. that, you know, the, the girls that are being interviewed for that clip um, that I think shows up in Anthology, they're all quite young. Yeah. So, of course, they're going to like Herman's Hermits. You know, a year from now, they're going to like the Monkees. Yeah. While, while the, the Beatles are kind of moving on to... to, to so they're not... They're taking their audience with them, but they're not getting the the new twelve and thirteen year olds or kind of thing. Well, that's you know my big sister's group or my big brother's group. Or um, so they're still selling. You know, they're 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 still selling. There's still no other band at the time that could fill a stadium. Yeah. Except on this tour, they're not quite filling the stadiums. Uh, so ticket sales are down. They're still selling tens of thousands of tickets, and they're still playing in stadiums. But there are some empty seats and. Uh, with with the whole kind of bigger than Jesus controversy and all the rest of it, it all feeds into that. So then, you know, you get somebody is on a pedestal, you're always looking to try and knock them down. So then there are the press stories about, are oh, the Beatles on the way in? So um, the yeah. touring experience has become difficult. It, 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 it There's a certain wisdom to them stopping touring here because, as you say, ticket sales are down. And the narrative about the Beatles stopping touring is always well, we've done it and we wanted to experiment, we wanted to expand and et cetera, et cetera. You very rarely hear the argument of, well, they stopped touring because they weren't selling as many tickets as they used to. And if yeah. it was to be a, you know, if, 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 if they were seeing it as, well, we've reached the peak and it's diminishing some game from this point out, you know, they don't really need the look of going out on a 67 tour and they're selling half as many tickets again. Um, yeah. You know, so, so the, 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 there's a pragmatic decision here that they don't want to be seen to be failing potentially. Yeah. Um, although I think, the, I think the driver is they're just exhausted. They're just fed up. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it's a diminishing return, not only financially, but it's a d- diminishing return, I would have thought, um, emotionally or psychologically. They're not, they're not you, you know, they've done all of this. That they've had that particular high in 1965. It's not the same high in 1966, and it's becoming a drag yeah. uh, in 1966. It's not something that they enjoy. And um, that, I think, is the... And they are sort of approaching it in different ways. So, um, you know, it's George is the one that's most often quoted as saying, that's it, I'm not a Beatle anymore uh, after Candlestick Park. But, you know, anthology, Ringo pinpoints John as the one that doesn't want to tour. Yeah. Paul is always the one that says, you know, he he was was least in favor of giving up but then became persuaded and Ringo was just Ringo, you know, well, 
I'll do what they say. Uh, I'll, I'll do whatever we, we, we have to do. So, uh, again, they're the, the sort of the band collective band dynamic is changing at this point as well. And we've seen a little bit of that uh, in, in the revolver sessions as well, where there are some tensions. Um, so I think, I think the main driver is the fact that they, they're just, well, we're not doing this. We're not going to be bundled into vans. We're not going to be threatened, you know, on stage in Memphis, you know, they, there's yep. a firecracker goes off and they think someone's taken a shot at John and, you know, it's we're just, just not, not prepared to put it. up with this. It's just not worth it. And what we also have to keep in mind throughout this episode is Brian's central role in touring. Yeah. You know, he is there every step of the way with them. He is Mr. Fixit. He is there speaking to the police, speaking to the, the theater managers, speaking to the local dignitaries who, whose wives all want to get photographed with the Beatles. He is there every step of the way on the tour, completely involved in that aspect of their life. Yeah. If we look at some numbers about that Monday night in Candlestick Park, the capacity was 42,500, but only um, 25,000 tickets were sold. So what, about 60%. So there was large sections of unsold seats. Tickets were uh, $4.50 to $6.50 each, and the Beatles fee was around $90,000. Um, I, I had to. I went off and looked at historical exchange rates for 1966, because mm-hmm. um, such is my want. Um, that uh, exchange rates in the 60s didn't move day to day in the way that we kind of expect uh, them to move. So there was kind of a, almost a fixed rate of um, two dollars eighty to the UK pound in 1966. So uh, ninety thousand would give you thirty two thousand pounds in 1966. Uh, which adjusted for inflation is £634,000 for uh, the Candlestick Park gig. Um, but uh, aha, Mr. Wilson devalued the pound uh, the following year to $2.40 per pound, and then we developed you see, it. Well, you know, 634000 I I would quite frankly, do 20 minutes at Candlestick Park for $600,000. <laughs> well, that is the thing. Like the, the, the overheads are, um, like, the Beatles took 65% of the gross. Uh, the city of San Francisco took 15% um, of the admissions. And uh, the, the promoter did not make money. Um, but they only performed 11 songs. And as you've sort of alluded to there, and as we kind of know, you know, they, they are not, this is the Revolver tour, and they are playing nothing off uh, Revolver. Um, they're playing, uh, let's just go through the list, rock and roll music. So they're opening with rock and roll music. Uh, She's a woman, If I Needed Someone, Day Tripper, Babies in Black, your favourite, I Feel Fine, Yesterday, I Want to Be Your Man, Nowhere Man, Paperback Writer, and then ending on um, Long Tall Sally, like Wings would end on. So (laughs) it's a a very um, neat type of, uh, of an 11 song gig. I, you know, if Revolver had, Revolver comes out while they're they're on this tour, and if if I'd been sitting at home listening to that and then trotted along to buy one of those unsold seats in Candlestick Park, I'd be I think I'd be a bit disappointed if I didn't hear, uh, you know, something off uh, Revolver. And I'm not suggesting they bring a string quartet on and and uh, do Eleanor Rigby, but there are songs there that could have been performed but yet they're going back to babies in black which is definitively the worst song they ever recorded so uh very strange but it is it does bring up this question of did they know it was their final uh concert or not um because paul gets tony barrow to tape it because he thinks it's the final concert yes so tony tony barrow the press officer he's there and he says um 
you, you know, Paul said, can you just can you just tape this concert? And I, I always assumed that this was Tony Barrow lugging a huge reel-to-reel machine, but it was actually recorded on a cassette um, that had a 30-minute playing time on each side. And uh, Tony Barrow records it. And um, because he doesn't switch the tape over, it just runs out at the end. So they don't get the last uh, little section of uh, Long Tall Sally. And I, I, I think that's kind of quite fitting. It's a metaphor. You know, yeah. yeah. I think if they if they ever run this through the Giles Martin uh, demixing machine, um, they shouldn't be flying in the second half of Long Tall Sally from a Memphis gig. They should just they should just let it just. Uh, well, I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be AI technology in the next few years to go. Hey, the first half sounded like this. Can you just tell us what the second half would have sounded like? And yeah. we just have a. We don't, uh, we don't want that, don't we? Of course we do. Imagine, no, we don't. Imagine a button where you could just get a, a Beatles album every day through AI. It'd be great. It's it's very fitting that the last song of the last concert just cuts off midway through. I think that's a that's a nice. You know, it's like uh, what's that song on Abbey Road that does that? Her Majesty. It's just the same. I want you. <laughs> oh, I want you. Uh, it's just like that. It's it's a foreshadowing. You say everything. Everything is a foreshadowing of something. You're the foreshadowing it, guy. It's all connected. Um. So so they're in San Francisco. They're 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 doing this gig. But this is an episode about Brian Epstein. And oh yeah, I'd forgotten that. Yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So what is what is his life like in San Francisco? Because this is a very different window into the existence and the world of the, the group and Brian at that time. Yes. Uh, well, uh, Brian, Brian's back at the hotel um, in San Francisco and um, he, he's with a, a Nat Weiss, who was a, an American lawyer that had become a very close friend of his who would go on to be involved in sort of the American side of, of the NEMS operation. But Brian was also reconnecting with John Diz. See what they did there, Gillespie. Diz, um, like, like Dizzy Gillespie. Yeah, yeah. Who and I'm I'm just going to check the notes here. He was an an American aspiring actor slash model. Hmm. And he was a boyfriend or a former boyfriend of Brian's. And the Beatles, he's he's one of the Brian boyfriends that the Beatles knew about. Yes. Yes. Um, so say. Paul has said, you know, they were they were aware that that, that Brian was gay and it wasn't an issue for them um, at all. Um, but generally, I think he he kept that side of his life separate uh, and apart. But uh, Diz Gillespie seems to have been different. So um, it, he was someone I think that Brian had met in New York. Um, he came to London and Brian put him on a retainer of uh, 50 pounds a week. Um, and uh, he was officially sort of signed to NEMS and he was the only sort of actor mm. that was signed to NEMS. Everyone else was, you, you know, Cilla Black and, and, and uh, the Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers. So um, it was a relationship because he was in London. The Beatles met him by all accounts. The Beatles didn't particularly care for him. The relationship soured uh, within six months, uh, he's back in New York. Um, the next thing that I'm aware of is in April 65, Brian is in New York uh, to oversee Cilla Black's appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. Mm. And uh, uh, Gillespie effectively threatens Brian, supposedly holds a knife to his, to his uh, throat, um, steals some money. So that, that uh, you know, the whole relationship had descended to that 
level. Nat Weiss had intervened, confronted Gillespie uh, back in 65 and paid him off. Yeah, gave him $3,000 to just go away and leave him leave Brian alone. Yeah. Um, and then here, here we are back in San Francisco a year later. He resurfaces. He resurfaces and, you know, uh, once bitten and all the rest. But while the Beatles are teeing up their, their, their Candlestick Park appearance, Brian is dealing with uh, John Diz Gillespie re-entering his life. And um, essentially, more madness ensues. He, he basically more, more breaks the into their hotel. Yeah, more more of the same. So um, Brian at first, and this is this is kind of characteristic of Brian as well. He seems quite pleased to see him. So despite <laughs> despite all that has gone before, um, you, you know he Brian is trusting this guy again. Uh, and what happens is um, he steals twenty thousand dollars in cash uh, in Brian's briefcase and Nat Weiss's briefcase, but also contracts uh, relating to the Beatles tour and Brian's uh, uh, supply of uh, barbiturates, these uh, illegal, yeah. not officially prescribed. Uh, and then uh, he delivers a ransom note for another $10,000. Uh, and if Nat Weiss, who seems to be a great friend and confidant and a support to Brian who gets things done. As you said, he, he ran the, the, the US Nemperer uh, side of NEMS, which was kind of acting in, in based in New York and acting as kind of the, the US window for all their business interests yes. in, in North America. Um, Nat Weiss hires a private investigator and gets uh, Diz Gillespie arrested. They recover uh, 10, 10K, but the drugs are not recovered. But that's a good thing. Because if the drugs had been recovered, then um, the police would have been aware that Brian Epstein, that man that manages the Beatles, was carting a briefcase full of illegal drugs around the state. So actually, the fact that the drugs are missing or presumably have been consumed, um, always eat the evidence, Jason, always eat the evidence. Um, well, or, 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 or maybe the private investigator was told, if you find drugs, chuck the drugs, just get yeah, us the just money. Get- Get the, get the drugs. Get get the drugs down the toilet, and uh, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, but this is this is a major uh, embarrassment to Brian, and a kind of psychological blow to him because he has kind of trusted this guy again, and he again. This seems to be a pattern that that repeats itself uh, in this type of personal relationship that Brian gets involved, trusts the person really, kind of opens up to them, and then when he is let down or betrayed or robbed. Or held at knife point. <laughs> this is the point that he realizes this is. I'm not a good judge of character. This oh, is not a good situation again. to be in. And uh, you know, we've all been there. But uh, you know, <laughs> well, it's it's it it is a microcosm of the the flip side of 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 Brian because you know, to the outside world, he is the impresario, as you say, standing with his hands yeah. behind his back, looking into the corners of the stadium, making sure the boys are all okay. And simultaneously at the same side, there's this total amalgam of, um, you know, the, the, the people who have come in to meet him through his lifestyle to take advantage of him, coupled yes. with uh, his drug use, because he has um, been using drugs basically throughout his whole time, managing the uh, the Beatles. Um, and then, you know, his whole sort of dealing in cash, um, you know, business managing. I know there was a lot of cash around in showbiz yeah. at that time anyway, but, um, you know, it's all just there. So it's, it's, it's amazing how none of that was really 
like that would have been a scandalous news story back in 1966, you know, Beatles manager in extortion uh, plot, you know, and yes, yet, uh, I mean, you know, I'm sure some people must have known, but it certainly didn't get out there. It is amazing to me that it didn't get out there, that, that this, this story didn't break. And um, I don't really know why that is. I, I don't really know why that is. But um, Brian does seem to have been very naive in so many aspects of his life, both the business, but also in his personal life. When he connected with people and made friends with, with Nat Weiss, um, people like that, it's a friendship that uh, is very deep and, and, and very, he's able to rely on that. And that uh, uh, Weiss comes to his rescue, I suppose, on a number of occasions. But he also then just opens him up, himself up in a similar way to ne'er-do-wells. Mm. And it, it's this notion of there's a, there's a certain type of side to Brian that you know, likes living on the edge. His other big vice is gambling as well. Yes, yes. I I, th- I think that's right. I think it, it it's the, you know, it's presumably the thrill of get the potential for it all going horribly wrong and the potential for getting caught that there's something illicit and there's a danger and there's a thrill. Um, but then when that comes to pass, it, it there's there's no learning from that. There's no, uh, I know I'm coming across as a very censorious uh, <laughs> lawyer, but there, there there is no learning from this experience that this is not a good thing. Uh, this is not a good thing to do. Um, uh, you know, the one thing he comes across as being a very isolated character. Hmm. So he, he has this very, very close relationship with the Beatles. He has one or two extremely close friends, but there's a whole side sort of side of him that he can't he can't share one side of his life with the Beatles and he doesn't want to share the Beatles side of his life with anybody else uh, and there's a tension there I think and, and uh, you know it's it, it might be very remedial or basic to say but you know it was 1966 homosexuality was illegal in the UK at that point in time and that's obviously a huge um burden for him or it's a huge certainly psychological burden for him that it sort of feeds into this sense of Brian being two people or getting very adept at taking parts of his life and putting them away where nobody can see them. I think so. I think it's that compartmentalization. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but earlier in his life, you know, he had been arrested, uh, you know, and there had been court proceedings with, with this kind of show business people that he's surrounded with. His sexuality isn't an issue. Um, but it is for everybody else. Uh, his his particular kind of uh, thrill-seeking or that sort of dangerous aspect of that aspect of his life leaves himself wide open um, to the, the exploitation by the likes of Diz Gillespie. On the other hand, he's appearing on TV. He's uh, presenting a completely different persona. And I think you're right. It's if, if, if you live your life in that way and you, you have these different compartments, you can never really open up to one single person or you can't share across this. So you become increasingly isolated within those little compartments. We're getting, we're getting very deep getting here. Getting into amateur psychology hour here. Um, but that's where we're at. It's, it's, it's like it's, it's August the 29th. The Beatles are dealing with the future of a life off the road and what that potentially means. Brian is dealing with a, an extortion plot from an ex-boyfriend. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, once you hit September 1966, everybody needs a break. And do you know who else needs a break, Stephen? We need a break. Yeah, we need a break. We'll be right back after this. End of part one. Intermission. 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So it's September 1966, and the Beatles have made their last proper paid public concert appearance in Candlestick Park in San Francisco. And 66 is a is a is an odd year for the Beatles overall because they've been on this treadmill of two albums a year and four singles. And in 66, it's the, the year where they release the least. Um, they put out Revolver and they put out Paperback Writer Rain. They just put out 16 songs in 66. Very lazy. Very lazy, slacking, slacking. Absolutely, great. yeah, absolutely lazy. Um, so you know, September '66 is earmarked as you know uh, a time to take a break and to reflect and to think. And so uh, George and Patty fly to Bombay on September the 14th. John Paul and Brian take a little weekend break in Paris on September the 16th, and then John. Uh, two days later, on September the 18th, applies to Almeria in Spain, where he's due to get involved with How I Won the War, the Dick yep. Lester movie. And then Paul, uh, after being in Paris, decides to drive around France in the skies. Classic Paul move. Classic Paul move. Stick on that moustache. And uh, it's not, is this the point at which he can't get into a club and then he has to uh, whip off the moustache and go, Ta-da. but it's me, c'est moi. <laughs> I mean, I, I know we've mentioned it before, but that photo of... Um, Paul in disguise at the George Harrison gate. Beautiful. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's fantastic. He's, he's got form. It's great. Um, so, uh, you know, what this kind of tells us is that, you know, the Beatles are, you know, obviously they, they've always had their own separate lives, but they're, 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 they're reaching out and, you know, George is particularly taking his India duties seriously at this point, that that's his number one priority is to get out yeah. over there. Um, where does Brian go though, apart from his little visit to Paris? Uh, Brian goes to the Priory. Now, the Priory is, uh, you know, possibly quite well known to to, to listeners uh, on this side of the Atlantic. It's a very famous um, when when celebrities get a bit tired and emotional, they go yes. to the Priory. They go to the Priory uh, to, to use a euphemism, and it's 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 perhaps came to prominence in the nineties, you know, but it, it predates. Noel Gallagher and, and all those other people. It's been around since 1872 as a private mental health institution. And it's, you know, throughout the 20th century, it evolved into a, a center that specialized in, uh, I guess, addictions, you know, many addiction based yep. problems. And so people would go to the, the Priory as this private uh, mental health institution to detox, to get, um, you know, psychology, get counselling, whatever kind of associated. To get well, Jason, to get well. To get well, to battle their demons and to overcome their addictions. 
And so the, so Brian, uh, as many later year pop stars would do, went to the Priory at the end of um, September uh, 1966. And this, it's a bit of a revolving door for Brian and the Priory, really, it, isn't it? It, it, it is. Um, you imagine they just, he, he has a room permanently reserved for him yeah. uh, during 66, 67. Um, I was surprised that the, well, I, I knew... Uh, that he'd sort of checked in somewhere. But I, I always assumed the Priory was, as you say, a sort of late 80s, early 90s uh, invention. Um, but it does, it does. I think nowadays it, it does have a kind of degree of celebrity cachet about it. You know, it if, 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 I, if I become addicted to podcasting, I will check in there. I will then sell my story to Hello Magazine. I, and, I don't think um, that's a risk. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, but but the, the only famous person I can find from the 60s was Paul Robeson was in the Priory before Brian. Ah, right. Okay. There you go. Okay. But it, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that, that, you know, these days there's no shame in going to the Priory. In fact, it's the source of income because you can sell your story if you're a celebrity. But in, in the 60s, this would not have been uh, looked on in the same way, you know? It's another part of Brian's kind of need to compartmentalize, really, you know, that he's... You know, this is another thing he has to do that, you know, he really doesn't want people to to find out about, you know. Well, exactly. And I think the timeline is interesting here because it's like literally just shy of one month yeah. uh, after they play their last gig that Brian has checked into the Priory um, to, to, to decompress. But he's, he's not there for long because by the 15th of October, he's back in North America with uh, Georgie, Georgie Fane. Yes, um, and again, I, I, Georgie Fame is not someone with whom you necessarily associate Brian Epstein. But yeah. uh, this is indicative of, and we'll come on to this, just the, the, the sheer volume of people that he's dealing with. You know, oh. the range of artists and, and, and the, 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 he has many fingers in many pies. Well, should we just have a, a quick look at that? Because if you take a snapshot of Brian's NEMS business, at the end of 1966, he has this massive roster. Uh, like we, we kind of see him, you know, as the Beatles guy, but he's yep. overseeing a, a roster with about 40 different acts. Um, at the top of the tree are the Beatles, followed by Scylla Black and Jerry Marsden, Jerry and the Pacemakers. But yep. he's the, 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 there's a whole bunch of other uh, groups there. So I'm just looking at a, a, a list you have here. So you've got Billy J. Kramer, Big Three, the foremost two, perhaps. Mersey Beat is not quite uh, the world-beating phenomenon by the end but of 1966 that it was. Um, Tommy Quickly, the Remo Four, the Moody Blues. So yep. um, Denny Lane uh, knocking around in early uh, Moody Blues. Michael Haslam. Who he, no, no, okay. no, no idea. <laughs> um, uh, a group called the Paramounts. Who they? Uh, Procol Harum to they be. Pro yeah, they are Procol Harum to be. Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers, Paddy Klaus and Gibson. Uh, Klaus being Klaus. Uh, and there's also a band called The Circle, who are a bit of a, an anomaly in the NEMS universe. Yes, uh, The Circle are the only American artists, the only American band signed uh, to NEMS. And this this arises out of, uh, we talked briefly about the relationship with Nat Weiss and Nemperor, which was an American entity set up to deal, basically to parallel what NEMS were doing in the UK. Um, Nat Weiss saw this band at that stage. They were called the Rondells. Uh, he offered them a record deal, said, hey, guys, I know Brian Epstein. And I think there was some skepticism about this. And uh, But anyway, eventually, 
uh, he signs them and um, they have a number one um, hit single with uh, Red Rubber Ball and then a follow-up Turn Down Day. Um, to the extent that they are so successful that Nemperer is able to repay within a year the loan that they had taken uh, to set this up. And the loan was actually provided by JAEP Music, J-A-E-P Music. Um, they are or were an English music publishing company that published uh, George Harrison's Don't Bother Me. And J-A-E-P stands for Dick James and Brian Epstein. Um, I'd never known that, but that that is not either a Northern Songs or a Harry Songs. That's a Jip music song. I'm sure George, George loved that. thrilled with Absolutely that kind delighted. of uh, <laughs> uh, arrangement. But Red Rubber Ball was a Paul Simon song. Uh, yes, curiously. Yes, indeed, so they had a big indeed. hit with a Paul Simon, uh, an unknown Paul Simon. They had a big hit with that, and and then of course they were they were joined to the Beatles uh, yes. tour as a support act. So that that helped. But um, I, I've read in one telling that it was John Lennon that said, you know, don't like the Rondells, the Circle, and that's uh, C R Y K L E, and a hey psychedelic kind yeah. of way. Um, it's a very late 66 type of name really, isn't it? The Circle. It is. And it, but but they had they had songwriters in the band that wrote, that, that wrote as well. And um, they went off to be jingle writers. And I think I, I, this may be more for American listeners, but there's a kind of plop, plop, fizz, Alka-Seltzer right. jingle that they wrote. Apparently quite, quite, quite big. <laughs> in, <laughs> big in America, Jingle Circle. Well, you're listening to the Jingle cast. Um, that's interesting. Um, that's the circle. So, but, but it, it's interesting with this huge roster on NEMS, how is Brian, I mean, Brian is obviously not day-to-day dealing with everybody in minute detail. He's overseeing this no. empire. And it's set up, obviously, Brian is the main owner. So the directors of NEMS um, are Brian and his brother, Clive. Brian owns 70% of the shareholding. Clive, his brother, owns 20% of the shareholding. Uh, and then the remaining 10% is split 2.5% each for John, Paul, George and Ringo. It, it's it's curious that they are getting a very small percentage of the that the huge amount of money coming in from um, Tommy Quickly, you know, <laughs> that, yes. a, little, a little bit of it, <laughs> a little little bit, little yeah, little come on, on Tommy, two point five percent of the fifteen percent you're giving to me is going into Ringo's pockets to be taxed at ninety percent. Yeah, um, fantastic. Yeah. It's like that. Uh, what's that King song? The money go round. The money uh, go round. Like. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but it's it's a big deal it's a it employs 80 staff in five different london offices and it has this uh Nemperer connection this other business that it's associated with in new york and at the top of the tree you have this guy who is not you know you know not not the most reliable we're we're beginning to find out yes and i mean the thing is that when brian is invested in a particular artist, and his his key charges seem to be the Beatles, Scylla Black, and Jerry and the Pacemakers. And um, Jerry and the Pacemakers are going to split up quite shortly, and uh, Jerry's going to go on to a, a solo career of sorts. Um, but when Brian is invested, you know, Brian will personally arrange for flights, private jets to fly Scylla Black here, there, and everywhere. He'll send one of his assistants, Alistair Taylor, up to sort of hold her hand at, at various things. So he, he's, he's in one sense, he's 
deeply involved in the personal arrangements for some of these artists. Yeah. But you do then get other people saying, other on that roster saying, you know, we're not on his radar. He doesn't pay attention to us. We're not getting the promotion. So again, you, you build the relationship with the Beatles and the Mersey Beat groups on his personal friendship, his personal relationship with these people. But yeah. You can't, you can't be like that with everybody. Um, and whilst he has some good people around him, he has, you know, good PA. He's got Alistair Taylor is there. Peter Brown is there. Jeffrey Ellis is there. These, these executives. He also runs interference. You know, he wants to be in control. He wants to be in control of the day-to-day stuff, but he doesn't have time. And then sometimes he's not interested. Plus, you know, he's off in Spain looking at bullfighters or he's, uh, you know. <laughs> well, but, but that is, yeah, you're right. There's a very specific pattern you see with Brian where he's either dealing with something in minute detail with yeah. very specific instructions and control. And invariably that tends to be very much more so for a Beatles-related product. He's got a good relationship with George Martin, so there's a conduit there for them to communicate the music that's being done in Abbey mm-hmm. Road uh, on behalf of the band. So this pattern is, you know, Brian's either very, very, very in control or involved, or it has to be a certain way, uh, or else he's not involved at all. And no. in that not-involved realm, he is seemingly very poor at delegating or organizing or saying, well, look, recognizing if I'm not giving this amount of control or specificity to this job, those people can do it. There's there's a bit of a wilderness around the edges of the NEMS empire. There, There is. And I mean, there are constant stories of him telling people, go off and do something, but then barreling in, coming in at the last minute and saying, that's not the way you should have done this. Or, you know, you will not fly to America tomorrow with Robert Stigwood and then ring up at midnight to say, why are you not on the plane with Robert Stigwood? You know, so he he's he's will not delegate, will not let people, uh, uh, will not define the areas within people, within which people are, are to exercise their own control. Um, and as you say, either he's completely over every detail uh, and micromanaging, uh, um, or else he's giving no direction to anybody and then criticizing when things don't go the way he feels he would have set something up. So it's it's not the way to run a small business and it's not the way to run uh, a business with 80 people and five offices. Who, ne- who, who, needs, who needs five different offices in London? Well, <laughs> in different locations, you know. Well, <laughs> they were all they were all on Zoom, weren't they? No, who knows? Yeah, um, probably. <laughs> but he... he, he in terms of the Beatles' existence, he had been very much involved in touring, presentation, releases. Yeah. Post-Candlestick Park, that changes. There's no Christmas Beatles single or album uh, uh, on the horizon, on the immediate horizon. Uh, there's no touring on the immediate horizon. And and there's a couple of very telling incidents that are kind of happening uh, that kind of give you an idea of the insight into what Brian is 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 being like at this time. So like one of the basic in relationship should have been with the Beatles book, which is the, the yes. monthly Beatles magazine that hopefully everyone listening here all knows, the little colourful banner, the, the pocket official Beatles magazine that is very much at this time selling many copies and is still a driver for Beatle information, Beatle knowledge. And but it's not something that's under the control of Brian. 
No, no. Uh, it sort of is run alongside separately, but uh, for, from NAMS and, and the Beatles, but it has this very close um, relationship. And as you say, it is the sort of official organ of communication uh, to, to the fans. And... Um, in addition to the stopping touring, one of the things that happens in 66 is, you know, they're not doing television as much. They're, they're, they're kind of not doing those slightly cheesy photo shoots. Um, and ab- above all else, the Beatles book is a photo magazine. So there's just lots and lots and lots of, of, of photographs. And um, they really s- scale back doing photo shoots and of course the Beatles are changing their look so their hair is changing and they're growing moustaches um, uh, the old John sure. Mulaney bit one day they didn't have moustaches and then the next day they all had moustaches so because because they don't have up to date photographs and this is just fantastic uh, Sean O'Mahony uh, mentioned in um, Get Back and Dig It I think um, also known as Johnny Dean for the purposes of the we should yeah, have he, names like that. We should. We should adopt, uh, as the as the uh, editor of the he he do the editor's page every every month yeah, in the Beatles as, book as as Johnny, Johnny Dean. Dean. But they don't have up to date photographs. So fantastically, he gets his artists to draw moustaches <laughs> on old photographs um, of the Beatles uh, to uh, <laughs> demonstrate uh, their their new look. I'd like. I, I, I'm going to have to go and see if I can find some. If we can find some of those photographs, uh, um, those would be good. So anyway, the good news is this prompts a major showdown with Brian, who comes along with his lawyers. Excellent. Never have too many, too many lawyers, um, and he's basically threatening to close down the magazine and saying, "I'll see you in court and I'll shut you down." And uh, uh, these photographs are not true uh, representations. They're not true to the image of the. Uh, of the of the boys and uh, Omani said, uh, "Fine, fine. You want me to tell the public the truth about the boys?" And then proceeds to list um, a whole range of uh, um, less than <laughs> savory stories, <laughs> savory stories about the Beatles to which he is a party. Uh, saying, "Well, I'll, I'll I'll print this and I'll print that." And uh, Epstein suddenly realizes, you know, he doesn't have the the upper hand here at all and uh, is forced to back down and they the lawyers uh, for an appropriate fee um, come up with a compromise whereby there's some editorial changes in return for delivery of photographs with uh, real moustaches but I think there is suddenly a, a realisation here on Brian's part that he does not necessarily hold all the cards um, yeah, uh, in dealings with what is is actually should be a very beetle friendly, cooperative magazine, and yeah. he instead of going and just having a chat with Sean O'Mahony, he comes in lawyered up, which is you know as I say that's just usually a good thing. But uh, you know, a, a quiet uh, cup of tea or a sweet sherry and a chat would probably have ironed the whole thing out without the need for that. But there's some other kind of instrumentally off things that he's he's doing. You know, there's uh, you know they they've played their second show at Sta- Shea Stadium, and you know there's this there are examples of Brian making deals that uh, on one side you can kind of forgive him because he's making deals where deals haven't been made before, but he's also doesn't realise perhaps you know you're you're representing the Beatles, you hold all the cards, you can make big demands. Uh, yes. And yes. He, he's not really doing that. No, I, th- I, you know, in some ways, some instances, 
he's a good negotiator. You know, in some ways, he's just a bit of a pushover. And he, he unless he's sort of in the mood for conflict, he seems to shy away from conflict sometimes. And as you say, he doesn't, he doesn't seem to realize the bargaining strength of his own position. So, um, you know, the Beatles make a tidy sum uh, from Shea Stadium. They, 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 it had grossed $282,000, of which they get uh, $183,000. So that's very nice. But Brian has done a deal with uh, Sid Bernstein to underwrite the ticket sales. And the ticket sales are down. And shortly after they get back from the American tour, Sid Bernstein sends Brian a bill for $800. <laughs> so <laughs> Not a huge amount, but even still. Yeah, but it's just the very fact that... that um, Names end up having to pay the promoter $800 off the back of a $282,000 show. And, and another thing that he's involved in in the end of 66 that he's been involved in for, for a while is the, the Savile Theatre. Yes, yes. And that's something that um, will loom large in the legend of 67. It, it really does. The Savile Theatre becomes a kind of, um, you know, iconic venue for rock concerts. You know, everybody plays there. Chuck Berry, uh, Jimi Hendrix, um, uh, Procol Harum play there the night that their that uh, wider shade of pale gets the number one. Um, having been the Paramounts, you know they just. But uh, so yeah, he and again this this the idea that he would want to own or lease or run or manage a theatre very much goes back to those days in Rara. I think where he's. But well, it's that of, impresario you know, bug that he it's has. It's that uh, yeah, he's 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 the famous impresario, as Paul would uh, <laughs> take it away. Uh, yes, um, but it, it's it's something. The Savile Theatre should have been something that um, could have been nothing but successful. There was successes yeah. in Brian uh, leasing and taking over uh, the Savile Theatre. You could even think that the the you know the labelling of events as the Beatles present could have gotten people in the door if he'd wanted yes. to do something yes. like that. But it's he he sinks money into these pet projects without really much thought. So if you're a Beatle fan and you think of the Savile Theatre, you're thinking, oh yeah, that's when Jimi Hendrix played there in 67 and it was all cool and groovy. What you didn't realise is that he is sinking huge sums of money into niche bespoke plays that he wants to see. Yes, so the building itself needs a lot of work. So there's there's money going into that. And then he, he puts on... Um, you know, a huge range of plays. Um, so you, you've, you've got uh, the solid gold Cadillac with Sid James and Margaret Rutherford. You know, that, <laughs> that's, uh, you, you pay good money to see that. That, 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 you imagine, that, would, be, that that'd be good. Um, but uh, he, he, he also micromanages everything. So, you know, whether it's the new seats or the layout or the directing of the plays, or he is there and he's interfering and he's clashing with everybody. He's having rise with everybody. Um, he just cannot delegate. Yeah. And I, I have to admit, it was only in the run-up to recording this that I realised that when I lived in London, I walked past the Savile Theatre many, many times. Yes, it's on... And- and what is it now, Jason? It is now an Odeon. It's on Shaftesbury Avenue in London. It's now a four-screen Odeon with a very distinctive brick facade and, and arch. And it's it's just right behind or up the road from the FOP, if anyone, anyone knows the yes. FOP, <laughs> on, on Shaftesbury Avenue. And when I was like, oh, that's the Savile Theatre. So the, the main outline of the building is still there, but it's a four-screen cinema. It stopped being a, a, it was sold in 1969. Yeah, he's doing all of these things on a lease. He's not even owning the theatre. No, no. 
well, owned no, it. He, he, he could he at least have had a property but, investment. But he, he, it's also uh, in, in just up the, literally a few hundred yards up the street is, is where the NEMS offices were. Yeah. Um, and if you go up there, there's a restaurant whose name escapes me that they have a big picture in the window of saying, you know, the Beatles once at here and, and um, you can kind of go in and there's photographs of where they held their. So he, he was kind of in that geographical area. But just to, you know, uh, Hendrix played there, um, Chuck Berry. I think Chuck Berry played there today. I was, right. I was the day that we were recording this. I think it was the anniversary of of, of what the Chuck Berry concert there when there was a riot. Um, the Rolling Stones played there in December 1969. So this is this is kind of at the, the absolute peak of the Stones. You know where they're playing Madison Square Gardens yep. and that that they're, they're they're playing there. Um, uh, December 67, Yoko performed her "The Fog Machine" music of the mind, which included a projection of the film <laughs> Bottoms. In the men's toilets. Uh, so, Fairport Convention, the Incredible String Band, the Bee Gees, the Beatles made Hello Goodbye there. And of course, perhaps best of all, The Move played there. The Move. Was that one of their riotous gigs? I can't remember where they smashed televisions and cars. I can't. I think that was up we, at the we, Roundhouse, actually. We now have two hours on The Move from yeah, our Move to, correspondent. Move notes here. Um, when people talk about Brian's business dealings, there is the seal tab debacle that 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 often gets mentioned so we probably should mention seal tab i'm I'm glad you've said i'm glad you've said seal tab because for years and years and years i used to read that as seal tab or but yeah seal tab (laughs) is is clearly seal tab tab, no i think seal tab is absolutely right it's just um uh i remember uh i'm going completely off on a tangent here there was a an album by carlos santana and uh, john mclaughlin um, that I, I used to refer to as oneness until somebody pointed out to me that it's actually oneness is the. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong because it's it's Beatles backwards, so it's probably yes, it is. No, I think, or Yeah, that's what I was going for. But I think seal tab for the for, for the sake of my sanity, I think seal tab is is what we go with it. What is it? Seal tab, yeah. Seal tab is um, basically goes back to sort of 63, 64, when as soon as the Beatles started to become huge, immediately Brian is besieged by people saying, can I put Ringo's face on a tea towel or can I have a John Lennon toothbrush or a Paul McCartney toilet roll holder or a George Harrison lavatory brush? Um, You know, everything. People just wanted to brand everything and initially Brian dealt with these himself obviously um, but eventually it became too much and uh, he really needed someone to run interference deal with all of those things and the best thing to do was to set up some kind of third party licensee who could uh, deal with this so he turned uh, to a friend of his uh, David Jacobs who is described here as the then leading show business lawyer in Britain, representing uh, Laurence Olivier, Judy Garland, Jaja Gabor, and Brian Epstein. And uh, he'd been involved in the Profumo case. So he, he's kind of very high profile. Much yes, like and myself. he's not the David Jacobs British. He's not the British broadcaster, David Jacobs. This is a different 
David uh, Jacobs of Jukebox Jury. No, completely no, different. a different David yeah. Jacobs altogether. Different David. Different. Uh, um, yeah. So he is sent off as kind of the, as you say, to run interference and to be the, the go-between man to decide what needs to be done um, for yes. Seal Tab. And he makes a brilliant deal, right? He makes a brilliant deal. And uh, <laughs> as, as anybody would, uh, you would think, well, who do I know on the uh, fantastic showbiz circuit party scene uh, that might be interested uh, in, in doing this? And he literally just gets some guy that he knows that he's friendly with from this, I, I suspect, slightly unsavory party scene. Am I allowed to say that? Mm, I don't know. I well, don't know what you mean. From, we, we wait to hear from somebody's <laughs> from somebody's somebody's lawyers. Um, but he gets in. He he basically gets in touch with this guy uh, called Nicky Byrne, and uh, said, "You know, would you be interested in doing this?" Now Brian Epstein has given him David Jacobs complete authority to go off and and sort this out. And of course, uh, you know, they say, but Brian didn't know much about merchandising. David Jacobs doesn't know much about merchandising. Anyway. He speaks to Nicky Byrne, who isn't initially particularly keen, but um, he, he's got a contract. Uh, he comes back to uh, Jacob's office on the 4th of December, 1963, leaving blank the various percentages, the kind of split between what he will take, what NEMS will take. Um, Jacob says, well, what do you think? And Byrne said, oh, just put in 10%. And Byrne says he expected Epstein to come back and do a bit of negotiation. This typical percentage might have been 75 or 80 percent for NEMS at this stage because Byrne is just going to be the broker. Yeah. You know, again, it's NEMS that holds the, the image rights effectively. Um, but Jacobs just fills the contract in, takes it to Epstein, Epstein initials it, and there you go. Uh, Jacobs' advice being 10 percent is better than nothing. It's and it's it's a huge loss of money to put it. Uh, it is mildly. It, in in my defence uh, for the negligence of the lawyer, he's not wrong. Ten percent is better than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but ten percent when they possibly could have been looking for a standard rate of about eighty yeah. percent. That's handing over a significant chunk of cash to the people in between, and that that uh, that also means a significant chunk of cash for more lawyers. For more lawyers. So again, it's a kind of win-win situation. But uh, I, I think essentially when you, you know, we're talking about these big, big numbers across everything the Beatles are doing in terms of record sales and ticket sales and all the rest of it. But they're getting small percentages of royalties on the records. They're getting, you know, we, we've seen they ended up having to pay $800 to the promoter for, for Shea Stadium. Seals have licensed 150 different items Almost immediately, dolls, scars, mugs, bath water, bath water, bath water. wigs, t-shirts, bubble gum, licorice, empty cans of beetle breath. <laughs> that's very, that's very, there's people on TikTok doing that these days. It is, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I'm presumably like, here is some of Ringo's old bath water. I mean, uh, anyway, so to give you an example of how this works, uh, Burn, Nicky Burns' company, uh, Seal Tab, charges 10% commission to the merchandisers to get the license. So for every $100, he gets $10. And then out of that $10, he gives 10% to Brian Epstein, which is $1. Jeez. So capitalism, oh. capitalism. <sighs> well, a certain Mr. P. McCartney, when asked in later years uh, what he thought, said, we got screwed for millions. 
Um, oh, the, the, Paul, the, it's not about the money. <laughs> the Beatles it's may not. The, it's about the bathwater. <laughs> Did the Beatles know at the time? Maybe not. They didn't really. This is this is a question because what happens is uh, you know Brian realizes pretty quickly. Um, you know, Byrne turns up and gives him a check for for you know. I think it was £9,000 or something. And he said, okay, out of this, how much have you to get? And he goes, no, no, that's your share. That's you, that is your 10%. And Brian suddenly realises this is a disaster, that this has gone completely wrong. Um, ultimately, it ends up he is able to renegotiate a more favourable commission Yeah. Uh, the following year. By August, he's getting 49% uh, by August 1964. But by this point, he's become embroiled in court proceedings Um, and uh, this is really the disaster you know we have the initial disaster of signing the contract but then the way in which it's handled so he then sues Sealtab in New York alleging you know improper accounting this is in December 1964 there's a counterclaim saying that uh, NEMS and Epstein were surreptitiously issuing licenses to other people. There's a whole kind of standoff. Brian tells his own employees, just deal directly with the bathwater salesman. Uh, <laughs> don't go to uh, to Nicky Burns. So he then gets a counterclaim for $5 million in damages. Um, the whole thing escalates. Uh, he refuses in 1965. Brian refuses to fly to America and give a deposition, you know, to sit down for a, a sworn statement. Says he's not going to do it, um, although he admits that he's probably not qualified to answer the questions uh, that are going. To, which is a startling omission, given that you know he's head of the whole thing. Anyway, because of all of this, and because by sort of '66 the touring is is becoming more problematic. You've got the bigger than Jesus people like Woolworths, J.C. Penney's, other companies refuse to finalise any merchandising agreements and they cancel orders worth, wait for it, $78 million. Um, So the estimate is that they lost uh, the court case, the contract, all of that lost NEMS and the Beatles approximately $100 million. So the Beatles, the, the merchandisers back off uh, the touring, but for, for various reasons, but also because you don't know they don't know who they're they're dealing with. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, by the time all of this sort of works its way through the courts, and I should say, Seal Tab all fall out amongst themselves as well. There's sort of yeah. lots of other subsidiary lawsuits going on internally. Um, but by the time this is all over and settled, the Beatles have stopped touring. Uh, the merchandising mania has faded, it's it's now Herman's Hermits and the monkeys and yeah, it's yeah. it's and all of those people are learning from the mistakes uh that um that that Brian went. And uh Alistair Taylor has a quote and he said uh we did our best. Some people have said it wasn't good enough. That's easy to say with twenty twenty hindsight. But remember there were no rules. We were making it up as we went along. Um but my favorite quote is from Tony Bramwell. And he says, Brian Epstein floundered all the way to the top. And I, th- I think this, that's harsh, but I think there's maybe an element of, uh, an element of truth. Um, and did the Beatles know or did they not know? You, you'd think that this would get a lot of publicity. 
mm. uh, this kind of litigation. But were the Beatles really paying much attention to that? Uh, Brian, certainly his contract was coming to an end. His management contract, the, the recording contract was up for renegotiation as well. And there's a suggestion that this is really the thing that was most preying on Brian's mind. If the Beatles find out that I've lost them $100 million, they're not going to be best pleased and they might not stick with me and I might lose the Beatles. And that, that seems to be uppermost in his mind, that, that of, of all of the things that are going on and all of the stresses that, that he is under at this point, this is the biggest thing. And it makes sense that the Beatles would not have known the detail of this. They might know, you know, they, they were surrounded by lawyers and surrounded by lawsuits. Um, this is just maybe another lawsuit and they maybe didn't realise the full extent of it. So when we look at this snapshot at the end of 66, there's a lot going on, but also Brian's position, he's worried about what his role is as somebody who organises concerts and organises recordings if they're not happening. But on paper, he should also be worried because the Beatles, their contract with EMI is up, their contract with him is up. Yeah. And that just adds to the whole levels of unknown in somebody who perhaps isn't the most secure person day to day anyway. I think this is, this is exactly it. You know, so as we reach the end of 66, he's got all of these pressures. His personal relationship with the, the Beatles is, still seems to be good. Although, as we, you said early on, they're all going off in their own things. They're starting to, to sort of broaden. You know, Lennon's doing film, uh, but George is in India. Paul is wearing disguises. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, all of this is coming to bear and the pressures are building in his personal life, in his business life. So where can it go next? I guess we'll have to find out in part two of Brian Epstein's last year. Um, we're available in all the usual places on Twitter at BeatlesPod, the Nothing's Real Facebook group, uh, the website www.nothingisrealpod.com, which is a gateway to all our other stuff, our past episodes, discussions, playlists, YouTube and all the rest. And uh, we're always happy to people to get in touch and to get involved. But for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.